Time goes by so fast, but I'm thankful every time one shows up. It's a chance to rest, relax, and <clears throat> kind of catch up with your thinking. Just one I think I think I want to mention here at the beginning is uh, I guess everyone's pretty familiar now that uh, our sort of president, Joe Biden, kind of laid down the gauntlet a couple of days ago. He's uh, going to make it a mandate that all businesses with over 100 employees uh, have mandatory vaccinations or get fired. And can you imagine what this is going to bring about? There are already doctors and nurses quitting over this by the hundreds and thousands. What's the medical profession going to look like? Uh, those doctors and nurses see what happens to people when they get this vaccination. A lot of them are scared to death of it. But uh, it's interesting that he's pushed that hard and is going to continue to. Uh, that's what his powers behind the seems telling to do. That's what he was put there for, was to bring this nation down. And he's working very hard at it. He doesn't have much mind left, but he has enough to follow some instructions, especially if they feed them to him just before he speaks or they're on the teleprompter. Uh, he can get it. Uh, he's supposed to cut the supply lines, the food lines, uh, the health and the economy of this country he has been instructed to destroy. And these trillions of dollars that he's passing out to people and to companies is headed for hyperinflation and the total destruction of the dollar in the American economy. That's the goal and the purpose, and it is quickly being accomplished. So uh, he's working on all these things, Ford and... General Motors both announced that they're cutting their production. Even though it has already been slow, they're cutting it even more because they can't get the computer chips. Why? That's part of destroying our economy. Do you think they don't know how to make computer chips and they give all these excuses about why they can't get them made? They're cutting it off on purpose. About the biggest industry in this nation is automobiles, and they're cutting it off. Even Toyota, the biggest uh, automaker in the world, is cutting way back because they're out of chips. The Japanese thought a little ahead, and they stockpiled them. But now their stockpile is running out, and their production is also going down. It's just wild. If, if a dealer can get a new truck, they still have to sell it close to MSRP. But a three- and four-year-old truck is selling not for 65 like the new one, if they can get one. It's selling for seventy-five to $90,000 now. A three- and four-year-old truck. They're getting 10, 15, 20,000 more for than for a new one from the factory. You know, a factory used to order 30, 40 trucks and they'd come. Now they order 10 and they get one, maybe. 
So that's where we are. And that is doing a great deal toward creating inflation with what there is left and destroying huge industries. Those automobile plants employ thousands and thousands and thousands of workers. Those jobs are going away. And now Uncle Joe will probably send them a check too because he wants everybody on government welfare. This is what we're getting to is a universal check for all the peasants out there so they get this much and their card gets refilled every month so that they can barely get by and they don't have anything else. It's all being taken away. It just hit me this morning. I don't think I'd had this thought that uh, we had Joe DeCotch to destroy the church and Joe Jr., two women or unclean storks, I think as Zechariah 5 describes them, carried the church and set it on its base in Babylon. And God had sealed its mouth, thrown lead in its mouth, so worldwide shut up and then got hauled away into Babylon. And now we have another Joe who is set up to lead this country to destruction. How long he'll last, I don't know, but there's nobody behind him that could be installed there that could do any worse or could do any better and might even do worse because they're able to obey the puppeteers even better. Who knows? But we've already read in, in uh, Hosea that we're going to lose our king. Somewhere along the line, we're going to have one of our leaders killed. Isaiah mentions maybe two of them, Isaiah 7. So uh, we've already read that now in Hosea. So that's coming. These end-time events begin in Ephraim, in the United States, the leader of Israel. And that's why the first of these minor prophets is about this country and what is happening here. It was first about the firstborn church, typified as Judah and as Ephraim in, in Jeremiah 31. So it happened first to the church, and now it is decimated and destroyed. Uh, so if the book of Hosea then turns to the nation, and we are in the process of everything that Hosea says, it isn't all finished yet. There are a few things in there we read that are still yet to come as it gets worse and worse. But we can see, I think, very clearly that this is a current events book now, Hosea. And it shows how bad it's going to get to a degree and then shows that there will be repentance at some point and God will set his hand to again save and bless Israel. And that's kind of how the book of Joe, of uh, Hosea closes. Verse 9, I think, is very important for us to consider of chapter 14 of Hosea. We read it last week, but let's review it here. It says, Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. All these things we've just read about. And we do, don't we, understand these things. God has opened our understanding to realize 
that what we're reading in this book is what is currently happening in this nation. It's not prophecy anymore. It is current events. But how many people understand it? Who is prudent? And he shall know them. For the ways of the eternal are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. So there's a warning there that be wise, be prudent, serve and obey God, and you'll escape what's happening here, but the transgressors are going to fall in what is now occurring. And it's going to get to be a steeper slope, and it's going to become a faster slide. We're already seeing it, but here it comes. Now we go from there, and I think I'm going to continue this, to the book of Joel. This is a very interesting book because it steps it up a notch as to what Hosea has to say. The name Joel in Hebrew means the Lord is God. And in this book, he details by the time he gets to the end of the book, some of the things he is going to do to show the world that he is indeed God. That's what everything in the end time is all about. So he starts with a prophecy of famine and pestilence, and then he goes on to the day of the Lord and ends up at the valley of Jehoshaphat with a final battle as Christ returns. So Joel just uh, goes into more drama, perhaps, in some respects, than even Hosea did. If you go to Isaiah 40 and verse 9, he says that it will be proclaimed by God's ministry, Behold your God. Now that's essentially what Joel is saying. The Lord is God. Look at this and see who God is. Or, as the ministry will say, Behold your God. In other words, he is going to reveal himself in ways that man has never seen. He revealed himself in some respects at various times, in Noah's day, in Moses' day, and here and there throughout history. And when Christ, of course, came and lived on the earth, uh, you could say, behold your God right then. Most people didn't. Behold the bastard from Nazareth was kind of more the mantra they used. But there he was. And he's coming back, and this time he's not holding back. Well, he's holding back from doing a final, total destruction. But he won't hold anything but that back for the very elect's sake. So, you find the same thing in Jeremiah 16:21. I'm not going to turn there, but it says there, the last words of that verse, uh, if you want to look it up later, Jeremiah 16:21 says, The Lord is God. 
And there are other places, but those are a couple that I wanted to use. Same words as Joel and what it means. So God picked a man named the Lord is God to reveal in this book what God is going to do to show who he is. There are quite a few different ways he's going to do that. We're familiar with Isaiah 44 and 45, where he says he will use the gold and the silver and the hidden treasures of darkness so that men might know from the east to the west, around the world, who God is. So he's going to do it by a dramatic show of things of the past, temple vessels perhaps, maybe Ark of the Covenant, and vast treasures of Solomon, and so on, are going to come to light to show the world who he is. Then he says here in the book of Joel, I've got another way I'm going to do it as well. So if you go through all the prophecies, you're going to find that he uses various ways to let mankind know who he is. How can you worship he whom you do not know. You have to come to know him in order to worship him. And he says of mankind and his religions, they don't know me. And I don't know them. We're not friends. We're not communicating. They worship, they know not what. Christ put it several different ways. And that has not changed since the day he uttered those words nearly 2,000 years ago. Maybe over at the beginning uh, as he grew up, but close to 2,000 years ago. So let's get into this book entitled, actually, The Lord is God. This is a very, very powerful, important book. It's a short one. But he has as strong a message as any of the prophets. The word of the Eternal that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. He says, Hear this, you old men, and give hear, or ear all you inhabitants of the land. So he addresses the elders, the old men, and then he includes everybody. This is a message for everyone, the leaders and the younger. Nobody left out. Has this been in, the, in your days or even in the days of your fathers? He's setting them up here in these first verses to say, What I am going to tell you, what is about to come, is something nobody's ever heard of before or seen. This is going to be something... You didn't hear from your great-grandfather or your grandfather or your father. This is something beyond that. Now, we've all heard stories, I suppose, from our family about the Depression and various things that were bad. And obviously, this is going to be a whole lot worse than what they went through in the 20s and 30s. A whole lot worse. Nobody around that can remember anything as bad as what I'm about to tell you is going to happen. 
Now, he wrote this a long time ago, and it's been here, but now the time has come where it is beginning to happen. You and I are in the generation that Christ spoke of, and he said, this generation will not die out until these things have happened. In the context there, he's talking about the end in Matthew 24 and 25, the end of the age. And that's the generation he was referring to, not the one that he was standing there talking to at the time. Obviously, that generation did die, and this hasn't happened. So clearly, he was talking about the generation that's here. When these things start to happen, it won't die out. Even as he says about the temple, there will be old men who saw worldwide at his glory, and this will be far better. So that's the generation that will not die out before these things are finished. It isn't a hundred or two or three hundred years away. That would be the echoing again of the hills. It is now upon us. (coughs) Joel is going to take it to a far more dramatic end than you and I have yet seen. But we're seeing the beginning of it in such a way that we know that it is here. Can there be any doubt that the beast and the false prophet are arising? We don't know the names of the two people yet. But we see the shape of that power taking place. And it is hit right here in this country when the kill shot has been administered that is going to kill tens of millions of people. There we are. So he says, tell you your children of it, And let your children tell their children and their children another generation. He says, nobody can remember any time as bad as what I'm about to tell you about. Now pass it along and it will be remembered from generation to generation. You know, when we're in the kingdom of God, we're not going to think back to this world. Because that one is going to be so much better. Why would you think of this one? But, there are lessons to be learned here that we should always, throughout eternity, remember. All you have to do, if you have the slightest thought of rebellion against God, is what he did back here. (laughs) Satan didn't have that in his memory bank. So when he began to get a little bit of Vanity, a little bit of ego crept in instead of total humility and service to God. He didn't think, oh, I remember such and such. I don't think I better go there. He went there. And now we have what we have. But all of us who are changed into God will have this experience on this earth. And God is giving us this on purpose so that we might never forget it. Just one instantaneous thought backward and you say, nope, not going there, been there, done that, no. The trials, the troubles, the tribulation, the tests, 
Everything you and I are going through are to be there, not to be remembered as individual things, but the lesson learned. Do not go against God in any way. He wants that in our memory bank. That's why he's putting us through it. Life isn't so wonderful here on this earth, is it? Oh, it has its times. It has its moments. But Solomon even said, the day of one's death is better than the day of his birth. And he says, in this life you will have much tribulation. That was Christ said that. Trials, troubles, tests. The Christian life is not easy. We don't always revel in the arms of God in total happiness and joy, do we? No. Paul said, if there isn't a life after this, we of all men are most miserable of all of them. We fight our minds, our attitudes, our words, our deeds every day, all day long, not to let any thoughts escape that are ungodly. That's a tall order, but that's, that's what we're asked to be working on. We'll never quite achieve it, but at least we can make progress and it doesn't say to him who is perfect, will I grant my kingdom. He says, him that overcomes. How much? I don't know. You don't know. Only he knows, as he looks at you and makes his final judgment, how much you've overcome, how much you lack, and how much he's willing to overlook. Because none of us will have achieved perfection. We're still working at it. We're a work in progress. And at some point, His grace and mercy and forgiveness has to kick in, or we're all done. But we believe that there is a kingdom of God and that we can be in it, and that's why we beat on our bodies and bring them in subjection every day. It's what we have to do. Now, happy is nice. And joy is nice, and it's a fruit of the Spirit. But the joy we have is more in the future than it is in the present. It brings us joy to think of how much better things are going to get. But right now, we have lots of problems, and it's not easy to just about walk around joy, joy all the time. Christ didn't when he was on the earth, did he? It said he was a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief and persecution and trouble and difficulty on every side. So, yes, he had joy of what he would go back to. He had joy for hoping we would also achieve that. But what he saw while he was here was a pretty sorrowful mess. And what does he say in Isaiah? That he will bless those who sigh and cry over the abominations they see. So we do more 
sighing and crying than we do dancing and jumping and singing. Now, we need to sing songs to God with joy in our hearts because they are about God and about what he's doing. So, yes, we should be joyful, but life as a Christian was not intended to be joyful beyond a certain point. That's why he warns us over and over that we'll have trials and troubles and difficulties. And to count them what? Count them all joy. <laughs> oh boy, I'm getting another trial. Here we go. There's a tough one right there. Things aren't going your way. It's hard to be joyful. But if it's building character... If it's helping you restrain or do what you ought to do instead of what you want to do, then it has a joyful conclusion, okay? And that's the joy we're seeking. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have some fun and laugh and carry on with each other uh, here and there, but overall, life should be fairly sober because we have an enormous challenge to live a godly life, and roadblocks at every turn, speed bumps everywhere, and we have to take it pretty seriously. And isn't that the message that Paul gave? Didn't he tell us that we have to put on the whole armor of God, that we're in a battle? Well, how much dancing and jubilation do you see well, you got a soldier in a foxhole, and he's got bullets flying over his head, and if he sticks his head up, he could get it blown off. And he's living a very difficult, dangerous, and fearful life, is what a soldier is doing, because there are people out there doing their utmost to kill him, even as he's doing his utmost to kill them. And when you're engaged... In a spiritual battle that Paul was describing, as we are, that's pretty serious business. Satan is trying to kill us, every one of us. He's trying to kill everybody on earth. And God's going to turn him loose, and Joel's going to tell us about it. So, we have work to do. We're going to sing a new song in the kingdom of God and sing a lot of Hosanna and Hallelujah before the throne of God because it will have all been accomplished. It will have been completed. The mystery of God will have been totally and fully revealed to us. So, yeah, you can find joy here and there, but take a sober approach to life. That's what Paul said, use that very word. Be sober, be vigilant, like a soldier on guard. Somebody coming in, trying to attack during the night. So that is the view of life that we overall ought to have. Is we're in boot camp, we're in serious, heavy training. Uh, it's difficult to get up at five in the morning and do calisthenics, or whatever they've got they're putting you through that day. That's very rigorous, very hard, and difficult. But the reward is worth it for us. 
So we are not of all men most miserable because we do expect a reward at the end of this. And that's what we look to, and that's why we come boldly to the throne of grace, seeking help and strength and power in His Spirit to overcome and grow so that we can receive the reward. Now that's a little beyond Joel here at the beginning, but he's going to do some things that will be passed down from generation to generation. They're going to be so dramatic and so horrific. He says in verse 4, as he gets into it then, that which the palmer worm has left has the locust eaten, and that which the locust has left the canker worm has eaten. And that which the canker worm has left has the caterpillar eaten. <coughs> In other words, no harvest. The fields, the trees are going to have their crops decimated. Now this may come by God allowing Satan to send certain things. Some of it's coming as a result of men who are influenced by Satan, who are conditioning the weather, who are cutting off supply lines, who are causing farmers to plow their fields under and telling them they'll pay them to do it. They want a lot of people to starve to death. Now, when I read this, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, I hadn't heard leaders of our nation saying some of these things. But they are. Now they're saying, we want 90% of you dead. And then they turn around and start cutting supply lines. They start shut off computer chips. They cause farmers not to be able to farm. They alter the weather, and they do have the power to do that, so that the rain doesn't come or it comes in floods, either of which destroy crops. So God is saying here, you're going to see various things that come. And one of the things that could be understood even in his day was these various insects. We just had a grasshopper plague, a terrible one in Pakistan and Iran and wherever all it went, down into India. And a lot of people have suffered loss and are going hungry as a result of that. There are people starving to death around this world right now. And it's getting to the point that there are some doing that even in the United States through homelessness, although some people are trying to help feed them a bit. But that's going to stop too. So he says, this is coming in such a way that nobody before has understood and they'll talk about forevermore. And doesn't he tell us again, one-third will die of famine and pestilence. Now, they would love to give everybody on earth these jabs so that they would die within the next year or two or three of various ailments that were planted there by the so-called vaccine. They'd love to have 90% die of that. But that's not the way it's going to happen. 
God tells us that. He says a third of us will die of famine and pestilence. So this COVID shot is going to bring pestilence. Already is. It's just going to get worse as its effect is felt more and more. But not over a third of us will die of famine and pestilence. A third will also die of the sword. And then a third be taken to captive and a sword sent after them. So that by the time what Joel says here is done, there will be less than 10% of us left. Less than 10%. Then he goes on down after saying we're going to have severe famine. There will be reasons that the food is all gone. And the communists have even told us, he who controls the food controls the nation. It's a quote from one of them, Marx or not Khrushchev, I don't think, but whoever said it. So he says in verse 5, Awake, you drunkards, and weep. We're drunk on our culture. We're drunk on our society. Not just booze. Not just drugs. Yeah, we're drunk on those too. But what that is is a statement of the way we approach life. We're happy with the things we have, the things that we enjoy. So he says, your drink is going to be taken away. And what does a drunk do when you take his drink away? He howls and yells and screams and gets angry. Or his drugs. Doesn't want to give up his booze or his drugs. When you're an addict, you don't want to give it up. You don't want to. That's why it's hard to get addicts to go to their help people or drunks to go to theirs. Because deep in their heart, they really don't want to give it up. Why should I go to rehab? I might get lose my favorite drugs. Why should I go and have to give up alcohol? You know, a lot of them think the alcohol and the drugs make them happy. No, they don't. No, they don't. Because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Alcohol, to a great degree, represents uh, wealth in a society where alcohol is available to any and everybody. See, in a lot of societies and cultures in the past, it was only the very rich who had wine or whatever forms of alcohol they generated in those days. The peasant didn't have that. He ate his lentils and whatever he did have. And the rich were the ones who partied. What did uh, Ahasuerus do back there in Esther's day? Oh, he threw a big banquet and had alcohol for everybody. That was a big deal because the average person just simply didn't have that. But in our country, it's there everywhere, anytime for anybody. So he says that's going to be cut off. That means our wealth is going away. For a nation has come up upon my land... That's on Israel, and that's on the nation of Ephraim first. 
because we are the great horror of Revelation 17 and 18. We are Israel, the leader of Gentile Babylon, is what we are. And that's why he told us in Ezekiel 16, you look like an Amorite and a Hittite to me. You don't look like Israel. You look like all these Gentiles. He wasn't saying their father and mother were Hittites and Amorites. He was saying, you, my people, whose father was Abraham, look more like Gentiles to me. And then he said throughout that that he would destroy us. It's coming on his land. And it's coming on this land first. I think there are a lot of people in this nation, and in the world for that matter, who recognize that the only real obstacle to their new world order, or their reset, as they call it now, is the United States. We're the nation hated of the whole, all the world. And they know they have to get rid of Americans and their guns in order to have their world rule. And that's why into Revelation 17 <clears throat> says that the woman who rides the beast, that's us, will, is hated by the beast and will be destroyed. All right, he says then, on his land, a strong... Uh, and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he is his cheek teeth of a great lion. Well, didn't he tell us back there in Hosea that he would come upon us as a lion, and as a young lion, and as a leopard, and as a bear? We read that a week or two or three ago. And here, he's going to send a nation against us who is like that. But God is behind it. You see, he's not going to personally come down and chew on us, but he's going to send somebody to do that, and it will be at his behest and at his direction. Because the point he's going to make is the Lord is God. He has laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He has made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. When you strip the bark off a tree, it dies. And that's what he's going to do. He uses that analogy here, like stripping the bark off of us. It'll dry up and die. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Now, when a new bride is married and takes a husband, she has stars in her eyes. Oh, he's the knight in shining armor. No matter what he is, really, but in her eyes, he's everything. She learns eh, a little along the way that he wasn't quite what she thought he was, but boy, at first, he is everything. And when he gets taken away, killed in war, killed in a car accident, dies of whatever, 
the weeping of a young bride, so 110% in love, is a horrible, sorrowful, sad thing. It never gets easy through life, but he uses the example of someone who is just so much in love. You know, there, there comes a time in a lot of marriages when, when they die, it's maybe a little more of a relief than anything else. <laughs> but not at first. Now, marriages don't have to go that way, and they don't all. I'm not trying to imply that, but he's using the love of you, and that this is going to be like her crying and wailing and in mourning. So he's building this up, okay, using several analogies that he might get to us through loss of food, loss of drink and wealth, loss of husband or wife, uh, all these things being taken away. The meat offering, the food offering, the drink offering is cut off from the house of the eternal. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. Uh, they lived off the tithes and offerings of the people from way on back and all the way through. And they're going to mourn and weep because those aren't coming anymore. They're all cut off. When there's no jobs, and Joe only sends you a small stipend, uh, there won't be much. And inflation taking that away increasingly. And of course, it's all going away when they throw the gold and the silver in the streets, and we'll get to that later. So it's all cut off. So everybody's mourning. On the religious side, the uh, non-religious side, everybody. The field is wasted, the land mourns, for the corn is wasted and the new wine is dry up, dried up, the oil languishes. So these are the result of all these different locusts or insects in whatever form they might take in our modern society. It takes the food away. And when the food goes away, desperation sets in. Be ashamed, O you farmers, howl, you vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. That's how you get famine, and famine is followed by pestilence. And right now, the leaders of this nation are bringing pestilence and famine upon us. Increasingly and deliberately, and it's going to get very bad in a very short time from today. It's in motion. He is just telling you where it's going to end up. And we're already into it. It's like, let's say a football game. You don't know the final score until the end. <clears throat> you don't know who's going to do what. Who's going to be a hero? Who's going to make a terrible mistake that loses the game? You don't know that until the end. So we're in the first quarter. The game is on, okay? It's here. It's happening. 
and it will progressively work toward the end, and Joel is headed there. So he's saying, these are all things that are going to happen. And let's read on. Because joy is withered away from the sons of men. All the things that we took joy and happiness in, our cars, our boats, our golf clubs, our whatever, is all going to be taken away and there's no food to eat. And you don't care about your boat or your hunting or your fishing or your cars or your house or your bank account when it won't buy you food. It just won't matter. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, howl, you ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. Now, this included the church, and I went through these over 20 years ago, nearly 25, and used the emphasis as the church in the Minor Prophet series. I'm not saying much about that today, but it has happened, and the church went where he says the nation is going. It's past history now, and I've said it I don't know how many times. A third of the church died of a famine and pestilence of the word. It wasn't around. We couldn't eat spiritually. They'd gone back into Babylon. The church began to fall apart, and people began to die of spiritual malnutrition. That happened. And then we had the enemy come in, the Tkachas and others, and put us to the sword spiritually. I mean, going back into this world is like being spiritually cut off, like with a sword. And then a third kind of went back into the captivity of either the religions of this world or the ways of this world, or its culture. They might have given up religion entirely until there's only about a 10% remnant left who are truly faithful to God, whom he's going to draw soon. So what I preached back then, 23, 4 years ago, has now finished in the church. We're now at the point that there's only that 10% remnant left, a little less than 10%, and he is going to call them shortly to finish the work. So now we're looking at this from the perspective of the world and what happened to the church that we clearly saw ahead of time is now happening to our country and we're in the first quarter. The game is on. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry to the eternal. Now, what should be the solution to the problems of this country? Turn to God. So, Joel and God calls out the religious leaders. This applied to the church, which is pretty well done now. And now it applies to all the ministry of the whole land. Who 
would God hold accountable for the teaching of God? And who is God? Would it be the miners? Would it be the farmers? No. It's those who are supposed to know God. And they've forgotten Him. And He says, you need to fast and you need to pray and you need to turn to God because the only way you're going to get out of what we're reading here is through God. That's why he entitled this, The Lord is God. And he calls on the religious leaders and tells them they are in deep trouble. That's what you do when you sanctify a fast. Solemn assembly, gather everybody up. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. So he's saying this is going to start out with famine and pestilence. We're going to, you're going to start having all kinds of problems, and I'm going to send an enemy into the land as a lion to chew on you. And this is all going to wind up with the day of the Lord. That's the last quarter of the game. Now he says the same thing in the book of Haggai, where he says there, oh, toward the end of chapter 1 or the middle of it, that and in a short while or a little while, he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth, all nations. And then at the very end of the book of Haggai, into chapter 2, he says, I will shake them. He took the little while out. So as they are building the temple, God says, it's just a little while and the day of the Lord is coming. And then at the end of that, when the temple is built, he says, the little while's over, now it's coming. So he gets right down to it in the first chapter, verse 15. All these things that I've started out telling you that will be memorable from generations to come is the day of the Lord. Now, what is the day of the Lord? It says it's at hand. We could go to quite a few scriptures. I'm not going to do it for sake of time. To quite a few scriptures to show what that is. <coughs> but he says it right here. The day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. God is going to destroy the nations and shake the earth. Isaiah 24, you can tie in here. day of the Lord will come, a day of darkness, and men will all be destroyed without inhabitant, except it says a few men left. Ellen G. White overlooked that. But a few men left. Daniel says a hundred million out of eight billion. It's not very many. That's a few men left. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Yes, joy and gladness from the house of God. You think these religions out here are going to be full of joy and happiness and singing their happy, happy Pentecost songs, these Episcopals and so on anymore? That's all going to cease. The seed is rotten under their clods, the garners are laid desolate, the barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. What do you need a barn for when you got nothing to put in it? How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed. 
because they have no pasture. That's already happening. There are ranchers right now who are sending their cattle to market because they have nothing to feed them. Northern Mexico, they're dying in the fields right now. Yes, the flocks of sheep are made desolate, nothing to eat. Where are most of the sheep grown in this country? The western states. Where's the greatest drought since 1,300 years ago, they're saying now? Right here in the western United States. They're running out of things to eat. The Colorado River is drying up. It may have been the original Euphrates River. Euphrates means cold. Colorado River water is pretty cold, even coming clear down from the Rockies. And there's a scripture that says the Euphrates will dry up. Well, I don't know whether they're the same in ancient history or not, but they could be. And the Colorado is today drying up. Lake Powell and Lake Mead are at desperate levels to even keep power being generated and provide water for 40 million people that it has provided for. It's drying up. It may be the one. Verse 10, O Lord, to you, or 19, I mean, O Lord, to you will I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned off the trees of the field. We got fires burning all across this nation, or across the West particularly, right now in several states, burning up mile after mile after mile of fields and pasture. A lot of ranchers run their cattle up in the national forests, and those are being burned up as we sit here today. And we can walk outside probably and see smoke right now because it's coming from hundreds of miles away in California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Montana, and all over the place. This is occurring as we sit here today. The beasts of the field cry out to you, for the rivers of water are dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. I drove along the Severe River just yesterday. It's basically a trickle. It barely covers the little stones in the bottom of the river. Some places it looks three, four inches deep. But usually you can't see rocks in that river. It's drying up. Chapter 2, be, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is near at hand. We're reading about these things that we are observing right now today, the fires burning up the fields, and he says the day of the Lord is at hand. Now he's not talking here just to the church at this point. He's talking to all inhabitants of the land. All of Ephraim, not just the church. And a warning of what is coming. And then he describes it better than he did in verse 15 of the previous chapter. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there has not been ever the like. Neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. That's why he said what he did at the beginning. This is something that has never occurred before and would be talked about forevermore. 
the people in the millennium will remember it as physical human beings. And it will scare them toward conversion. Same with the people in the great white throne judgment. They will have seen and experienced and died in this. Horribly. A fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing shall escape them. Nationwide across this land, talking about the land of Zion, the promised land, the U.S. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and as horsemen so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devours the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. Death. Destruction. God is sending this army. I think Dwight Armstrong misunderstood it a little bit when he wrote that song, God's Army. It sounded like righteous people in a way, the way he put it in the type of music he used, like it was almost joyful. If this is something that we should look at and think, well, how wonderful. No, this is, that is written about God sending a nation upon us that will kill us and will not be deterred and we won't have food and we'll have disease and death on this nation. I think that one ought to be rewritten. Here's some of the words he used. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war and they shall march everyone on his ways and they shall not break their ranks. Nothing to break them up. Nothing to impede them. Our military will be worthless against them. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. He's been given a job to do. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. I thought 50 years ago, or longer, that this sounded like robots. <coughs> Lo and behold, today, they have robots that can be trained easily to fight and to kill and be even be told who to kill. And robot airplanes, they can be programmed to kill specific individuals. I think what I was imagining as a kid has come to pass. And they may send robotic soldiers against this country. They shall run to and fro in the city. They'll run upon the wall. They'll climb upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. Nowhere to hide. They go in everywhere. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the alt stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter His voice before His army. For His camp is very great. For he is strong that executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? God is going to send Satan and his demons, and they're going to influence the leaders of the nations, 
And they are going to come in here and destroy us, and nothing can stop them or even move them out of a path. They'll just come through with no resistance. That resistance today is being removed. When people are sick from shots, when people are sick from lack of food, when people have been set against one another and are using their guns to kill each other, there's not going to be much resistance when God sends his army in here to finish us off. Do you not think more seeds for civil war were not planted a day or two ago when Uncle Joe gave his speech? Today, 19 governors of the states have declared war against Biden and his uh, mandates. 19 governors, that's almost half, and there may be some added to it, who said they're going to resist to the end, they will not accept what he said he is going to do in his speech a day or two ago. We will not. And he says he's going to force it. Do you see a headbutting coming? Jeremiah says we will have violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Violence means killing. Rulers will be killing rulers. And people will be killing people. The followers of this ruler and the followers of this ruler are going to butt heads and guns. So the army shouldn't have too much trouble by the time it's time to take us over. So God is sending this army. Verse 12, Therefore also now says the Eternal, Turn you to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. You think America's going to do that? Not a chance. God even says in the book of Jeremiah, don't even pray for this people. They will not listen. But Joel gives them the warning. He gives them the solution. He gave it to the church, and not many listened. Only about 10% remain faithful today. And only about 10% of the people of this nation are going to survive this to go into the millennium because they will not listen. But God says he does nothing except he warns by his servants the prophets. And that's what he's doing right here. How many pastors of churches across this land tomorrow are going to read this and tell everybody, repent? That's a joke. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Rend your heart and not your garments, and turn to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. Who knows if he will return and relent, and leave a blessing behind, even a meat offering and a drink offering, unto the Lord your God. If you just turn to him, he might turn this away. What about in... Joan, I mean, I uh, can't say the name. Uh, the flood. Uh, only thing of Jonah. Noah. I don't know my own name some days. 
But he had a hundred years there he worked on the boat. And I was think he was telling people, there's a flood coming. There's a flood coming. You ought to quit killing each other and turn to God. And I don't have room for everybody, but maybe God would change things if you just turn to him. Nope. It's more fun killing each other. Who knows? But Jeremiah says, from God, it won't happen. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify us fast. Call us assembly. Gather everybody. Let the bride and groom come out of their closets. This is serious business. The nation's going down. Marrying and giving in marriage. And life as we know it today is going to change so dramatically. Let the priests and ministers of the Lord uh, weep between the porch and the altar and plead that God spare our nation. But this kind of repentance is not going to happen. Then will the eternal be jealous for his land and pity his people. He would do it. it. says so right here. Right on the brink of it, as it's starting to happen, in the first quarter, he says if in the second or the third quarter you'd repent, I would remove this. But I think we're far into it now enough that the game is going on. It's not going to be interrupted by people who turn to God. Then he says he would repent and send corn and wine and would be satisfied. And that we would be no more reproach of the heathen in the end of verse 19. And I would remove far off from you the northern army. will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. He tells us back in Isaiah 7 to 11, that if the church repents and fears him instead of the northern army and the beast to come, that he will protect the church. Here he's telling the nation that he would do that if they would repent. Most of the church didn't, and most of the nation won't. That's just where it is. And he does tell the church in Malachi 4, and in Isaiah, that he will drive the Assyrian away from us, but not away from the nation. He makes a difference. Verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the eternal will do great things. Now he's changing the tone here. He's saying, this is coming. If you would repent, I would relent. But if you don't, then it's coming anyway. But he says he will do great things. Well, he will after this is over. That's what he told the church. After this destruction in the church, I will turn and bless those who remained faithful. And in the millennium, he is going to turn and bless those who come through it, and they'll be converted and live under his reign. So that's he points to the church of blessing and protection here at the end, and he tells those who survived the Holocaust that they'll be blessed and protected once the Holocaust and the day of the Lord is over. <coughs> so he gives some hope. He says, Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, 
For the pasture of the wilderness do spring, the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Just the opposite of what he told us in chapter 1. Be glad, you children of Zion, and that's what they'll be then, and rejoice in the eternal, and he'll give you the former rain and the latter rain. Now, we've seen that, I think, in the church. I didn't recognize it as such until recently. But he gave us an outpouring of understanding and doctrine and like we'd never had before. So we've had the former reign under Herbert Armstrong, the blessing of basic doctrines. And since then, here, God has given us all kinds of understanding we didn't have. Just poured it out in bushels. Then he's going to pour out physical blessings that way as the millennium begins. So it has a spiritual and then a physical application. You'll eat in plenty and be satisfied. And my people shall never be ashamed, into verse 26. Never be ashamed again. Well, they're about to be very ashamed. So this is obviously after these shameful things happen. And you'll know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God. He started this book by saying, the Lord is God. And then down here, he says, when I am done with all this, and I begin to turn it around, you're going to know who God is. How many times did it say in the book of Ezekiel, and they shall know that I am the Eternal? says it probably dozens of times. I never counted them all. You're going to know who God is. That's the whole point of the day of the Lord. And then afterward, I'll pour out my flesh. It wasn't just when he poured out his spirit in Acts 2. That was a small manifestation as he began the church. And he's going to do the same thing to the church here at the end as well. Is pour out his spirit and we'll have visions and dreams like we've never had before. But he's also going to do it at the beginning of the millennium to those who survive the day of the Lord. So that's what this is talking about in the ultimate fulfillment. Now, Peter didn't see what happened in the next few verses here. Or he didn't apply it to the beginning of the New Testament church. He applied the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the healings, the resurrections to Acts 2. But he didn't read on down and apply that to the church at that time. Let's see what it says. Verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. We're already seeing some smoke in the air, which is obnoxious and difficult. Darkness and smoke, and terrible things are going to get worse and worse. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Eternal has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. So, yes, this applied to the church, and still does, and that remnant has not 
quite yet been called together. The 90% decimation is essentially finished. And all that remains is that 10% that he is going to call and bless to help show the world that he is God. That's the point of the treasures. It's the point of the terrible troubles. It's the point of the two witnesses showing who God is by plagues and signs and wonders and preaching His name to them around the world for three and a half years. That's what this is all about. So 10% of the church kind of wake up, and then 10% of what is left of the nation will wake up, and they'll begin to know who God is. And He'll call Israel. Then all Israel will be saved, as as, uh, Paul says there in Romans 11.26. It's going to happen. Well, I'm out of time, so I thought I'd finish this book today, but I didn't quite get there. But that's enough for today anyway. But keep in mind, the Lord is God. You know that now. You've come to understand that. Let's not forget it. And let's let this reinforce it in our minds that we have to endure to the end. We cannot flag. We have to come boldly to the throne and grow and overcome so that he can turn and bless us and we can become a blessing to this world whether they know it or not by showing them who God is. Just as Joel is giving a message of who God is. Just as he says his ministry there in Isaiah 40 will do the same thing. Everybody on earth and in whichever resurrection has to know who God is. Even those who go into the lake of fire are going to be brought back. And whether they like it or not, they're going to have it explained to them who God is before they die the final death. We have such a great blessing to know ahead of time. Let's use it. Let's take advantage of it. Because our nation is falling apart before our very eyes and the things Joel is telling us here are happening. They'll get worse and worse as the game goes on, but the game has already started. And once it starts, it doesn't back off anymore until the game's over. You can postpone a game by a week or a month before it starts. But generally, once it starts, that's it. I mean, baseball, they postpone for rain or whatever, but you get the point. Once the game is on, it's on, and it's going to go to its conclusion. So let's brace ourselves, and let's be sure we're close to God, because as this comes on our nation, there are only a few who will have the wisdom, the understanding, the knowledge to turn to God and be protected from it. He says, as it comes there in Psalm 91, a thousand will fall at your left hand and ten thousand at your right hand, but it won't come near you. Will some of us get COVID? Maybe. It's a very mild disease, actually. Like a cold or the flu, it's nothing much to it. It's the vaccine that's the danger. That's what they're using to kill us. 
you don't want the vaccine. The disease might not be so bad, but the vaccine is designed to kill. They know what they're doing, and they're getting it done. And there's going to be war in this nation over it. And God is going to bring the day of the Lord. So Joel is saying what is going to have to occur, unfortunately, to show who is Lord.